If you'll find your place with me today in the book of Genesis chapter 6, if you've been with us, you know we're studying the life of Noah, talking about Noah's flood. We're looking at that period of history. And today, this is the fourth message. We talked about the wickedness, the wickedness. Uh, The day of Noah was a day of great wickedness. Life was going on just like life goes on today, but there was great wickedness amongst them, demonic activity. There was violence and evil of every kind imaginable. And we talked about the wickedness of that day, that even in the midst of wickedness, we can walk with God. The second message was about the warning. God gave them a warning. Judgment is coming. You cannot walk with God if you do not know God. And they were warned about what was going to happen, the judgment that was going to fall, and that they could have the grace of God, just like Noah found grace, they could find grace as well. But they had to heed the warning. And then we talked last week about the witness, that Noah's presence in that age was to be a witness. He had to live a distinct life that demonstrated the power of the grace of God to change a man or a woman and then to share that good news, to share that possibility. And he was the witness. But today we talk about the work, the work. Noah was given a work to do, and if we walk with God, we will know that God has given to us a work to do. And nobody is exempt. Everybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, who walks with God, will know that your life matters, that you have purpose, that there's meaning for your existence, and God wants to use you for his glory. Follow along in this passage as we've read it every week, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives of themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And that's what we're talking about in this series of messages. We're talking about walking with God. I want you to specifically note the phrase in verse 9. It says, this is the genealogy of Noah. If you don't know this, let me just inform you so that you will know this. Hopefully, it will become your method of study as well. But we as a church, I as a pastor, when I'm reading the Bible and studying the Scripture follow a grammatical historical method of interpretation, a grammatical historical method of interpretation. What I mean by that is this, historical. 
We believe that the events in the Bible actually took place at a time in history that what was going on at that particular time is important for us to try to understand and to know as much about as is possible, that these aren't stories of fantasy, these aren't stories of fiction, that these are stories of fact, that it is historical. And if you go back and you study archaeology, you'll discover that the archaeologists have proved again and again this place existed and these people existed and this time was the time that squares with what the scripture says and we talk about the Bible in its historical setting. In other words, every passage has a context and we want to understand the context, the historical context in which the passage was given. Grammatical, it's grammatical in the sense that we want to make sure that we understand the words that are spoken because people didn't speak in words that were veiled in some way. They spoke in words just like you and I speak. They spoke with words that communicated a message that the normal person could understand, the average person could comprehend. So that when we pick up our Bibles and we look at them and we study them, we're studying them from a historical grammatical perspective. That these events happened, that what is said is literal, that in fact, they spoke language that we all can understand. There's not some hidden message that you got to go find something in the dark deep somewhere that can't be found by anybody except people who have some kind of special knowledge. That's not how we study the Bible, and that's not how we understand the Scripture. As a matter of fact, the best way to put this, the one word to understand this is literal. We believe that the Bible should be taken literally. There are places in the Bible where it's symbolic. You can go to the Revelation, and you can read in the Revelation, and you'll find John sometimes saying, this was like that, or this is as that. When you see words like or as, you know that he's comparing it to something. He's using something figurative. He's doing something by way of illustrating what he's trying to describe. But most of the Bible isn't written in that fashion. Most of the Bible is written in a historical context with grammar that anyone of that day could have understand, language that they would have understand. And we are, therefore, to try to understand that history, we're to understand that language, and we're to understand that it's a literal story that's being related. Now, that's important because when you come to the story of Noah, as with a number of other stories from the book of Genesis, a lot of people want to allegorize it. They want to explain it away. They want to say it didn't really happen. It's not real. It's all a fictional story that's supposed to be communicating something other than what it actually says. But the fact of the matter is the book of Genesis was written in a historical, grammatical fashion. Turn back just a page or two in your Bible to chapter 2 of Genesis and let me just take you for a moment through some of these passages in Genesis to help you to see that the author Moses wrote in a historical, grammatical fashion. He was establishing that these are historical facts that actually occurred. You notice chapter 2, verse 4, talking about the, the creation days, talking about uh, the events of creation and what came from creation. He says, this is the history. Now, hear that word? It's the same word that we read over in chapter 6 that's translated genealogy. Here he's talking about specific events. Uh, over there he's talking about specific people. But he says this is the history of the heavens and the earth. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 1, 
He says, this is the book of the genealogy. Same as the word we just saw, history. This is the, this is the book of the history, the genealogy of Adam. Or in chapter 6, verse 9, we read a moment ago, this is the genealogy of Noah. Or if you turn over to chapter 10 in verse 1, chapter 10 in verse 1, you see he says, now this is the genealogy of the sons, the history of the sons of Noah. Or if you look at verse 32 of that same chapter, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their history, according to their genealogy, or chapter 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy, the history of Shem, or verse 27 of chapter 11. This is the genealogy or the history of Terah, and it goes on 12 times. He says, this is the history of, this is the, ge- this is the genealogy of. Why? Because these are actual, literal facts of history that took place. These are people who literally lived. These are events that literally took place. And the language that's used to communicate about these matters is a language that the people could understand and that you and I can understand unless we get too smart for ourselves and we decide to try to read something other than what it says. So that when you come to Genesis chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, and you read about the flood of Genesis, the flood of Noah's days. You're reading about a catastrophic event, a catastrophic event that actually, literally took place and wasn't localized but was worldwide. It's supposed to be taken in that fashion. That is the intended purpose of the author of the book of Genesis, that you see this as history that occurred. Now, I realize that today we have a lot of folks who discount the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and they do so, I think, to their own peril. They think they have to do that because they think science says that you have to do that, but The reality is you don't have to check your science brain when you walk into the church or you read your Bible. You only have to be willing to think outside of the box that they draw for you and say is the only way that you can think about something. For instance, when it comes to this flood of Noah, did you know that if the earth, the topography of the earth were flatter than it is, I'm not talking about the flat earthers. But if we're talking about a flatter surface than it is, do you realize that just from the waters of the ocean with a flatter surface than it is, that the face of the earth could be covered with as much as two miles of water worldwide? When you think about what took place in Noah's day, we're going to talk about it in just a moment. We're going to read about it here in just a moment. I want to remind you that while the floodwaters were on the earth, there were things that were going on beneath those waters that changed the earth as we know it. Not only were those who were living in that day drowned, but there were, there were things happening on the face of the earth with the earth itself that were being changed by the result of, of that flood. For instance... In Psalm chapter 104, verses 5 to 9, it talks about during the flood when the waters were on the earth that there were valleys that were created, what we call oceans today, and there were mountain ranges much higher than just hills, much higher than just the mountains of West Virginia, but there were mountain ranges that were created. In other words, while the 
ark was on the water. There was things going on beneath that was changing the topography, that was changing the continents themselves as this one landmass became broken up into several landmasses, the seven continents as we know of them today. When you think about Noah's flood, do you realize that after the flood that the climate changed for a period of time and that it climaxed with a, a, an ice age, uh, an, an ice age that was the result of the oceans where they were changing from the tectonic movements and the volcanic action, that there was a lot of evaporation, there was dust in the atmosphere, and there was a cooling effect that created this, uh, created, uh, this ice age. With ice age, there was the diminishing of the oceans, the creating of land bridges so that humans and animals could migrate from one place to another. In other words, you don't have to check your brain at the door to believe that God did exactly what he said he did in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, that we ought to be reading the Bible in a historical, grammatical fashion. And while I'm not a scientist, I'm a theologian, a pastoral theologian, while I'm not a scientist, I can read enough of the notes of science to understand that they're theorizing as to what occurred. They, they can't reproduce it. They couldn't see it. They didn't see it. They can't reproduce it. They can't document it. They're theorizing as to what occurred. They call that historical science, not observational science. And it's, it's everywhere, but you say, well, that just seems to be too fanciful and too fantastic for me to believe something like that. Really? Really? Have you considered what the evolutionists tell us? They want us to believe that everything came from nothing. Everything came from nothing. I can't help but think of the story of the man who was arguing with God and telling God, I can create a man with my own hands. God, just give me the opportunity. I can create a man with my own hands. And arguing with God about it, and God said, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And the man reached over to pick up a handful of dirt, and God stopped him and says, no, no, get your own dirt. They want us to believe that everything came from nothing, that by natural means, life came from non-life. Life came from non-life, that non-intelligence produced advanced intelligence. Well, there might be a few people that would convince us of that, but non-intelligence produced advanced intelligence, that life emerged out of the seas, that lower life forms changed over time to advance life forms, that we should adopt a molecules-to-man approach to origins, that everything comes by natural selection, mutation, time, and chance. <laughs> I don't know about you, when I read those things, it would take me more faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe what God said to begin with. But science has boxed us in, and they said this is the only way you can think about these things. But there are Christian scientists who think differently about these things and think outside the box about these things, and they have concluded, as I have concluded, that these are literal events that actually took place that explain why you have fossils high up in mountains where they should not be, why there is the movement, and there was the movement of the continents to, to the places where they are today and so forth that 
Those are literal events, the grammatical, historical method, the hermeneutic, the grammatical, historical method of interpreting the Scripture. So I believe that the flood of Noah actually occurred. I believe that it was a worldwide flood. I believe there were catastrophic things that were happening during the day of that flood that has resulted in the earth that we know it as today. I believe that all of this occurred, and the language that's being used here is language that shouldn't be something that's mystical, that it's language that is used for us to understand because they wanted everyone to know the facts of, those story, of the story. So now notice, if you will, in chapter 6 of Genesis with me. Let's talk first of all, if you will, quickly about the construction of this ark beginning in verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. Notice what he says. Make yourselves an ark. Let's stop there for a moment. The only place that you find this word ark is here in the story of Noah and one other place, and that's the story of Moses. When his mother made him one of those baskets called an ark, sealed it with pitch, put it out into the river amongst the reeds so that the Pharaoh's daughter would find it. So we have one ark that's the size of a basket for a little baby. We have another ark that's going to save mankind alive. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. We don't know exactly what kind of wood this is. Gopher is just simply a transliteration of the Hebrew word that's used here. What kind of hardwood was it? Is it some hardwood like we have today? Or was it something that was unique and specific to the day in which we live? We don't, they lived. We don't know. It says to make rooms in the ark. There's going to be places where people and animals can stay. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. They couldn't have been using the asphalt-based pitch but some other kind of resin that was used for the purpose of sealing the ark as he sealed that or she sealed that basket for Moses when he was placed in the river. He's sealing the ark so that it's watertight, verse 15. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. That's about, 100 and, uh, this is about 450 feet. It's about the equivalent of a football field and a half. Its width, width will be 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet. You understand I say about because a cubit is from the tip of your finger to your elbow. Have you guessed yet that your tip of the finger to the elbow might be slightly less than mine and others of yours might be more than mine? Most of the time you use the longer cubit when you're doing these things, 450 feet by 75 feet wide. If you're thinking about that, go out and count nine parking spaces out here in the parking lot from one parking edge to the other parking edge, nine parking spots at the bottom of that arc. That's approximately how wide it is. He continues, and its height will be three cubits. That's 45 feet. That's approximately four stories. Take our student ministry building, which is three stories, and add another story on top, and you get close to, a little bit, uh, a little bit further, they're taller than, but close to the size, the height of this ark that's being built. And you'll notice he goes on, verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark. Most of the time, that's depicted across the entire top of the ark. The opening across the entire top of the ark, and you shall finish it a cubit from above. And notice one more thing set the door of the ark in its side. How many entrances are there to this ark? 
is one. Because the ark is a reminder that Jesus is the only way to God. The only way to safety, the only way to salvation is through Christ and through Christ alone. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So inside, there's three floors. By the way, this isn't so hard for us who live in this region of the world to imagine. We only have to travel about three, three, three hours to just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, over into Kentucky. And there is an ark experience where an ark has been built to the dimensions that are mentioned here in Genesis chapter 6. And when you walk through it, you begin to understand this isn't some fantasy, that this was, in fact, something that actually occurred and literally could have happened. He goes on. He moves from the construction, if you will, to the catastrophe itself. He says, verse 17, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Look for a moment over to chapter 7, verse 11, and he gives you some details about this. Chapter 7, verse 11, he says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So it's not just the water that's falling from the sky. It's the fountains from beneath that are broken up and the windows of heaven were open. How many days did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights. But water's coming not just from above. Water's coming from beneath as well, floating this ark. We move from, we move from the construction to the catastrophe to the covenant that God says he'll make. Notice verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you, you want to know where that covenant is? It's over in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11 down to verse 17. He gives the covenant. What's part of the covenant, church? It's a rainbow in the sky that I will never bring a catastrophe like this with water on the earth ever again. By the way, there will be another worldwide catastrophe. You read about it in Revelation chapter 21. When God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and this world will be judged by fire. That's another worldwide catastrophe. But between the catastrophe in Noah's day and the catastrophe in Revelation 21, he says there'll never be a worldwide catastrophe of this nature that'll ever occur. And that's a covenant that God made with, with Noah. But then notice the collection. Notice the collection. Verse 19, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. That's male and female into the ark. They've got to reproduce. To keep them alive with you, they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come, with you, or come to you. Notice it says they will come to you. Noah didn't have to go out and round up all these animals. God brought them to him. They will come to you to keep them alive, and you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. And so you have the collection of animals. By the way, we know that not only were there two by two, the, the, the clean animals, they brought seven pairs of every kind. 
Uh, some of those animals would be eaten. Some of them would be sacrificed. But he brought seven pairs of all the clean animals and two by two of all of the unclean animals. You say, Pastor, do you read all of that and do you believe all of that is absolutely true? <laughs> do you think I would have said it to you if I didn't? I absolutely believe it's true. You say, is it possible to get that many animals, enough animals that would repopulate the earth? Hey, cre cre creation scientists believe that there were slightly less than 7,000 animals on the ark that represented 1,400 kinds. Kinds. It's the difference between kinds and species. 1,400 kinds. And there's some more recent re research that I've read that said that it could have been as little as 2,000 to 3,000 animals with as few as 1,000 kinds that would have been necessary to be on the ark. In other words, there was more than enough room for everything God intended on that ark. So maybe I should just stop here for a moment. Do you believe that? If you believe in a historical, grammatical approach to interpreting the Scripture, you believe that. Does science tell us that that's possible? No, science says it's not possible. But that's only for those who have already bought into a system that draws lines and won't allow you to think outside of those lines. Because outside of those lines, there are creation scientists who have come to different conclusions than the evolutionary scientists. Yes, it actually happened. As a matter of fact, it sort of looks like this. This is humanity. All of humanity was like this. After this was, this was Adam and Eve, humanity grows. All of humanity. And then God brings the flood, and all of a sudden, humanity comes back to these eight people. And from these eight people and from these animals on the ark comes all that we know today. And that's the story if you read it historically and grammatically. Now, I'm not here to argue science with you. I'm here to say to you this. Noah was a man who walked with God. Noah was a man who knew God. Noah was a man who loved God and who honored God with his life. Noah was a man who had a relationship with God and who lived his life in a way that demonstrated that he knew God. And because Noah walked with God, Noah knew the work. There's our word. Noah knew the work that God had for him to accomplish. Do you understand that walking with God is more than just about a feel-good relationship? It is a feel-good relationship. There's a relationship that grows of love between you and God and God and you. But you understand that when you walk with God, the outcome of walking with God is that we are supposed to then go work for God. And the fact of the matter is, every person in this room, every one of us, everyone who is watching this service has a reason for being here and a purpose for being here, but you will likely never find that reason or that purpose if you don't walk with God. You will wander through life, just bouncing from one thing to another, never certain that you're called to do something, given to do something, because people who walk with God understand they have a work to do for God. What was Noah's work? It was to build the ark. It was the work to build the ark for the saving of all humanity and all of the animal life. That was the work that God gave to him. And only people who walk with God know that work. Think about Nehemiah who walked with God and knew that he was supposed to rebuild those walls. 
Think about Moses who walked with God. After that burning bush, he walked with God and he knew that God was using him or going to use him to lead the children of Israel out of the out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. Think about David who walked with God. All of those Psalms that are written, he walked with God and he knew that God had given him to be the next king over Israel. Think about the apostle Paul who after he received Christ, he walked with God and he knew that God had sent him to be a missionary. Think about those disciples, those 11 disciples who walked with God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and they knew their purpose They knew their work that God had given to them. Why is it today? We have so many people that sit in our pews in our churches all across the world who sit in our pews and they have no idea why they're here. They have no idea what their work is. They're not plugged in anywhere. They're not doing anything. They're just watching and they're waiting because until you walk with God, you'll never understand what is the work that God has for you to do. In the wicked day in which Noah lived, he walked with God. The warning was heeded by Noah and his family, though no one else did. And because he knew God, he could walk with God. And as the witness of God, living his life in a distinct manner that caused him to stand out from everybody else in that day, Noah was a man who was a witness to the testimony of the truthfulness of God. And in his walk with God, God said to him, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Now, think about that. He's never seen a flood like this before. I don't know how many uh, ships he's seen. If he's ever seen a ship, he's given the task of uh, building this ship. That means he's going to have to mill the wood. He's going to have to cut it down, mill the wood, cut it into boards. He's going to have to build this ark. Maybe he hired people to help him. Maybe his sons were assisting him. Maybe there were others who assisted in the process who laughed at him while he was doing it, but he knew what he was here to do. I'm here to build the ark. You can laugh at me if you want to laugh at me. You can make fun of me if you want to make fun of me. You can say, I don't understand this. If you don't want to understand this, you can deny my message if you wish to deny my message. But here's the fact. I know I've been walking with God, and I know because I've walked with God, I know what it is that God has given me to do. God said, build an ark. And it's a great story about Noah. Will you notice down in chapter 6, verse 22? Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Look down at verse 9. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Or over to verse 16, so those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. Let me ask you a question. Did Noah obey God? Did Noah do the work that God had given him to do? Absolutely he did. Though we don't know all the details of how it all came together, though it's not clear to us all the things that were necessary to be able to build this enormous ship. By the way, this is the original cruise ship. More like a zoo. (laughs) For all you cruisers, think about that for a moment. This is the original cruise ship. But he knew that he knew that he knew that this was what God had called him to do. 
And you only come to that kind of confidence and that kind of assurance when you are walking with God. Otherwise, you know what happens? You're wondering, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to do. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Can't figure it out. You start walking with God, and God clears it up quickly. But here's what happened most of the time. We just stay waiting, and we do little or nothing in the process of our waiting. I want you to turn with me back to the book of James. Back to the book of James for just a moment. Chapter 2. And I'm going to read you a passage of Scripture, and I want you to think about it with me for a moment, about this whole matter. You walk with God so that you'll know the work that God has for you to do. It's going to be different for different ones of us. But I want you to think about it. As I walk with God, God reveals that I have to put my hands to the work he's given me to do. There's some work that's for all of us to do. The spreading of the gospel is for all of us to do. But there's specific work that God wants us to do. Do you know what that work is? You'll only find that work walking with God. Beginning in verse 14 of James chapter 2 is a passage of Scripture that I think is often misread and misunderstood. It talks about faith without works is dead. I want you to think about that with me for a moment. Because if we're not walking with God, then it's likely we don't know the work that God has for us to do. And consequently, what are we doing? We may have faith but our faith is dead. So you have to, have to define some terms before we read this passage together. Now, first of all, we have to define what we mean by the word save. Do you realize that in the book of James five times it uses that word for saved, but never of those five times is it referring to the eternal salvation of an individual's life or soul. Each of those five times is talking about temporal salvation, saving you from the deadness of fellowship with God or even the destruction of your flesh itself. You've got to understand, secondly, what the word justify means. It means to declare righteous. And Paul says the only way to be declared righteous by God is through faith in his son. But James is not talking about being declared righteous with God. He's talking about being declared righteous by others. So that when others see us, they say, that's a righteous man. That's a righteous woman. And then the word dead. What does he mean when he says dead? A lot of times we say, well, it means that there was never faith to begin with. Think about that for a moment. Your loved one that passed and who had a memorial service and you went by and looked at their body and it was dead, did that mean that they never existed? That's not what he's talking about when he talks about being dead. That is, it's unproductive. It's... it's, it's uh, it has no practical value. It's ineffectual. It's useless. And so when you talk about save, he's talking about saving us from the temporal destruction of our bodies or that of someone else. He's talking about justification, not before God, but before men. And he's talking about faith that has no works. That's what we're talking about. You got to walk with God to know the works that God wants you to do. Faith that has no works, he says, is useless. It's profitless. Now notice, if you will, verse 14. What does it profit? He says this twice because the bottom line is profit. My brethren. Now let me just stop here for a moment. Let me make sure you understand he's talking to believers. Notice chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren. Or verse 16 of that same chapter. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Or verse 19, so then my beloved brethren. Or chapter 2, verse 1, my brethren. Or verse 5 of chapter 2, listen, my beloved brethren. Or when you get to verse 14, my brethren. Twelve times he says, my brethren, or my beloved brethren. Or three or four more times he calls them brothers, meaning they're part of the family of God. What does it profit, dear Christian? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him, not from eternal death and eternal separation from God, but from the consequences, either his own or that of others? He's about to illustrate it for you. Can it save yourself or others from the deadly consequences of sin in this life? If you have faith but you don't have works, he goes on, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute or day of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, here it comes again, what does it profit? There's no practical value in it. It's unproductive. It's ineffectual. It's useless. What profit is it if you see somebody that needs help and you could help them and you don't do anything? Faith without works. Faith without works. A lot of people say they have faith, but they don't even know what their work for God is. He goes on, verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can say what you believe as long as you want to say it, but if you don't put works and begin doing works, you don't benefit yourself or anybody else your works are useless. Your, your faith is useless. It's meaningless. It's unpractical. Verse 18. Here's an argument somebody gives back to him. And all of verse 18 is a quote from this objector. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he responds, You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. In other words, you can. You can believe right, but sometimes believing right doesn't always work out as the works that are supposed to work out. The demons believe not in Jesus as Savior. They believe in, a, a, they believe in one God, but they don't have the works, right? Verse 20, but do you want to, to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's dead. It goes on, talks about Abraham. Then he talks about, uh, he talks about Rahab. How do we know that Abraham believed God by the works that he did? How do you know Rahab believed God by the works that she did? How do people know that we believe God, that we walk with God? How do they know that we walk with God? How do they know that we're people of faith? Because we work. We find out what it is God has for us to do, and we put our hands to the plow, and we go at it. Maybe your faith, and your faith will save you eternally, but what good is it to yourself or anyone else if you don't plug it in and use it for the glory of God? Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified, not before God, before others. He's shown by his works and not by faith only. Likewise, Rahab. He goes on to talk about Rahab. And then he comes down in verse 26. He says it again. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It's useless. Faith without works is dead. 
He says it twice, and then in verse 17, he reiterates it as well. Three times, faith without works is dead. Friends, what am I saying to you? And I'm trying to get to that kiss word my wife left me here. If you're going to know what God wants for you to do with your life and how he wants you to use your life and where he wants to use your life, you have to walk with God. Noah was walking with God when God said to him, I want you to build the ark. If you want to know what it is that God has for your life and the purpose for your life and the reason for your life, what is the greater purpose and the greater reason for your life? You've got to walk with God so that God can put his hand on you and he can say, this is what I want for you and this is what I have for you and this is where I want you to go and this is what I want you to accomplish. You walk with God and when you walk with God, God shows you your work. But a lot of people are like the man in James. They say they have faith but they don't have any works. They say, I believe in God, but I'm just sitting here waiting. Now look, faith is demonstrated to others and to ourselves for that matter by the works that we do. We don't look to our works to prove that we're saved. We look to the promises to prove that we're saved. But people who are looking at us to know whether we're saved are looking to our works. Where are you working? Where are you plugged in? What is it God has given you to do? What is it God has called you to do? Do you realize the incredible privilege that God has given to be co-laborers with him? What is it God wants you to do? Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. And I'm getting close to the end. If you say you're personally opposed to abortion, but you do nothing to bring an end to it. And you keep voting for the same people who support it over and over. You have faith, but you have a faith that is dead. If you say that you oppose new laws legalizing pot to be used recreationally, but you do nothing to try and stop it, you have a faith, but you have a faith that is dead. If you say you care about the poor and you do nothing about meeting their needs, you may have faith that saves your soul, but your faith is dead because you don't have any works. You're not being justified before others and nobody else is seeing the reality of your faith. And you're not delivering anybody else from the consequences of sin and you may not even be delivering yourself from the temporal consequences of your sin. If you say you care about the mission of the church, but you do nothing to help advance that mission, your faith is dead. Do you get the point? It's dead. It's useless. It's worthless. Can you imagine for a moment if Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then he just sat there and said, okay, that's good for me. I don't have to worry about where I'm going to go when the flood comes. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God showed him what his work was, and he saved humanity as a result of it. His faith wasn't dead. This isn't a proof of whether you're saved or not. This is not, if you don't have works, you don't have faith. This is, if you have faith, you ought to have works. If you have faith, you ought to have works because the only way people can be shown that you have that faith is the work that you do. But you'll only know that work 
If you walk with God, you walk with God. Where was it that Noah learned what God wanted him to do? He learned it while he was walking with God. We don't want people to have faith that is without works. We want people to walk with God and let him show them the work they ought to be doing and then to get busy doing it.